Welcome to The Butterfly Effect. I'm your host, Frances Lee Rogers, and each episode, I'll interview a different female leader in sustainability on how they navigate the emotions of working in this space at this time in history. I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's get stuck in. So hi, everybody. Hope, hope you're all well and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Let's get straight into it, shall we? So this week's podcast is a lady who I met on a very wet Friday morning in London um, back in April in 2023 after an inspirational speech um, on the first day of a weekend of events um, all around the climate crisis. Um, I'm going to let her introduce herself because, quite frankly, I don't think I could do her justice. And then we'll get into the conversation. I'll hand over to you, Sal. Uh, thank you, Francis. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Ariba. I am a co-executive director at Greenpeace UK. And I suppose by way of introduction, you know, I've been a lifelong campaigner and activist um, on climate. And uh, that has been a journey that um, in its latest iteration is is in this role, uh, which I started in October alongside Will McCallum. Great stuff. Great stuff. And um, kind of... How did you get there, Ariba? Tell us a little bit about the the backstory of getting to that that position. Uh, sure. Um, I think you know people sort of have passion and they know. I always envied people who knew always what they wanted to do, and I think I sort of didn't really. I was always interested in. I was quite academically inclined, and you know did well in school and. But I think what happened uh, with campaigning and activism was that I, it was a happy accident. I sort of followed certain conversations, uh, certain leads, and found myself in, uh, uh, working for Greenpeace back in 2006 in Greenpeace India. Um, I suppose some of the key factors that led me there were my education in political science. I read political science at the University of Delhi and then went on to study development and policy which was quite an interesting uh, combination, both because it it looked at both the theory, but also the practice of development and what it means for people on the ground. And as a part of that, I spent quite a lot of time with communities um, in India, across uh, India, looking at how certain things that were designed to benefit certain people, how were they experiencing it? Mm. And it gave me a very interesting perspective. And, you know, people who make decisions who are sitting in, in particular rooms and have a lot of power and they are making these decisions for a vast number of people. And how is them, how is how are those decisions materially affecting the lives of a lot of people? And I think that is a running theme um, in, in, in my career in terms of who's taking the decisions, who gets a who gets a seat at the table, and then what are those decisions that are being made and that are that are affecting the lives of, of a lot of us. Um, and and then Greenpeace India was hiring. My first job was at, actually at a magazine called Economic and Political Weekly because, you know, like I said, I was quite academically inclined. So I was interested in reading about what was happening in the world of um, economics and politics. But then it was also quite, uh, I, I loved it. I learned a lot, but I was also sitting, most of my time was sitting at a desk reading a lot of text and Greenpeace India was hiring for a campaigner. And I didn't know much about campaigning, but I wanted to be on a ship. Uh, and that's how I ended up applying for Greenpeace and got the job. So, 
so yeah and since then i've sort of spent a lot of time working across campaigns um across greenpeace offices um very lucky to have experienced loads and loads of incredible people and moments and ended up with this role um after nearly 15 years of working at greenpeace great stuff great stuff um so throughout that time um that passion that you talked about kind of kind of st- steady and perhaps helping you to maintain um the the i don't know i guess i'm really interested in in understanding what you said there how you've kept yourself kind of going because working in this area is is brought with lots of emotions isn't it and lots of bad news a lot of the time so how do you keep how throughout that 15 years plus have you kept your um kind of how you managed to stay positive and keep your emotions in check or yeah i think the constant struggle of a climate campaigner is is the uh, the balance between hope and hopelessness as it were um you know since i've started working on climate uh, the science has only become clearer um and at the same time we've seen governments and corporates fail to take action drag their feet i mean there was a time that we spent fighting climate denial we wasted about a decade where we should have been taking action uh but um but at the same time if you think about it we you know climate denial is pretty fringe right now so that's a battle that we did win um and if you think about it how mainstream climate has become the fact that people are having conversations about it in mainstream culture that the fact that there is art about climate and movies and podcasts and books so there's there is just there is a lot of change that has happened and i think very often sometimes we forget to take stock mm. and forget what we have won we we are very good as cam- climate campaigners to keep us stock of things we are losing or things we've lost but we aren't which is important and 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 you know also drives us to do more and better uh, and ask more people to join us but we sometimes forget to take stock of how far we've come um, in in this journey it's is it enough no but is it change definitely uh we've seen the fact that you know coal has come to an end when i started as a climate campaigner coal king coal was undefeatable um and now you you see most of the coal power plants being shut down it's left in very few countries in the world and even those countries are building rapid amounts of renewable energy and th- again if you had told me that 15 years ago that i'd be sitting talking about how coal fell um i would have found it unimaginable so it's important to remember how far we've come while keeping sight of how far we still have to go and the second bit that keeps me going i suppose is is people inspirational people they are so many of them and it's quite important to remember our own power uh, you know i tell the story often uh, about women a group of women in central indian village who were fighting a coal power plant and they were they were so committed they knew what what they they were going to do and they knew they were going to win and i always remember them in moments of hopelessness because they were far away from any sort of political or financial or social power um they were being threatened by the company that was building this coal power plant the government was hands in cuff with the company and they still kept on their fight and they won and i think there are the climate movement and you know the social movements the women's movement are full of inspirations like this are full of women like this who just have 
made mountains move and 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 you know uh, and one and we don't even know their names perhaps but if we really really thought about it i feel like there's so many instances like that where i asked them i asked these group of women i was like you get threatened and you know you get like death threats and aren't you scared and i remember they just said to me that's a sign that they are scared of us not that we're scared of them and i just feel like it's such an incredibly important lesson to keep keep in your head that we have more power than we think and given that the climate movement is on now mainstream our power is bigger than those who are trying to detract us and not to lose sight of that having said that there are moments of despair um and i think it's important to find to find uh, support and like-minded individuals to get out of it thank you yeah um a real thing there around actually stepping into our own power but actually indulging when things can be a little bit desperate and allowing those feelings to take place but getting support around you yeah yeah so um i'm really really interested to understand on your journey that you've just explained how you've developed your kind of unique leadership style and um what you pulled on to to develop that um so i think it was quite um organic I didn't I think I didn't set out to say oh this is what I want to do but again through interactions with a lot of people through meeting some inspirational leaders through actually asking for a lot of feedback uh honest uh pull no punches uh kind of feedback that has helped me on this journey um you know I think uh very often we make assumptions that just because somebody is good at their job they will be good leaders and that's i think that's a fallacy and i think lots of organizations make that mistake again and again just because you're an expert just because you're a campaign good campaigner doesn't mean that you're also a good leader uh and we somehow uh, we sometimes mix those things and then suffer the consequences and and because campaigning is my passion i think for a long time i was like i don't think i want to do a leadership because it'll take me away uh from what i really love uh which is you know doing the doing the strategy doing the power analysis changing things but then i realized actually that without good management without good leadership that's not possible and any good campaigner or a team would struggle if they didn't have good leadership and that's when i uh sort of started getting interested in in that and then you know like worked with colleagues both inside greenpeace and outside who 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 set themselves apart because of their style and i think you mentioned it uh, perhaps when we were speaking earlier about you know how a leadership for a very long time has been very male very gendered and it's about being the stoic leader who knows all the answers and who's very definitive they're like you know he's he's like we're going to do this they're black and white they're no grays uh more importantly there is no vulnerability and i think for me um that is that that is not i think for a long time i shied away from it also because i didn't identify with that style mm-hmm. i was like if that's what an extrovert let's not forget extroverts are leaders so and i didn't identify with any of those characteristics so like a lot of women i thought it's not for me uh but i think there were a few pivotal moments there was um uh, I forget her name now but there was a TED talk in uh, 2012 on to say which is about introverts and leadership it's quiet uh, it's the the book is called quiet the power of introverts and she did this TED talk about introverts and how they make better leaders and 
it really did uh, shake up my worldview of leadership. I had never, nobody had ever told me that because introverts take, give other people space and 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 are constructive, they can they can be they can be better leaders. Nobody had articulated to that to me before. And then I think more recently, Brene Brown's sort of um, uh, leadership uh, characteristics, in particular, being vulnerable, is an important part of leadership. Like be, being brave means sharing your vulnerabilities. Being brave doesn't mean pretending that nothing faces you. Being brave means sharing the things that you're going through and getting inviting people in. And the long way it goes in building trust with your team and the long way it goes in being co-owning a vision. And I think those are some of the sort of things that really inspired me and spoke to me. And I realized that there were a lot of people like me uh, who sort of, didn't think it was for them and then decided to lean in. So I think those were the things I would point out. So for, for me, I think the, the style is quite authentic as as a person who's, you know, um, I, I can say, for example, oh, yeah, I can I can do I can do a speech in front of 200 people, but I do find it nerve wracking. Yeah. And that's okay. um, because that's human and that's who I am. And I'm very happy to say that to um, anyone, I don't think it, you know, um, it's a wrong, wrong to share that. Or when you're struggling with a real big issue, saying to your uh, colleagues or your peers that this decision I'm finding really hard, you know, or I'm conflicted about this or um, and and taking people on that journey with you. And I think, again, trust and vulnerability is such a huge part of of of, of leadership. And then, yeah, I don't have to sort of lead from the front all the time. I don't have to be, uh, you know, dancing on the tables and taking all the space in every meeting and responding to everything. Um, I think it's about engaging in a way that is constructive. And and I, what I have found is that people will come to you seeking for your opinions if you actually give them that space instead of, you know, always being the first, always trying to gain take a lot of space um, in, in conversations. And I think... I'm still on a journey. I mean, it's it's been it's it, I'm still learning, and this role, even though I've been in leadership roles for a while now, this role is still new to me. So, yeah, and feedback. Just a quick sort of, I think without that, without seeking open, honest feedback, I don't think I would have uh, managed to do any of this work because there were people who trusted me over and over, and when I asked them what are the things that I can do better? They were honest. They didn't flinch from their answers. And I think that is such an important thing for any leader to encourage in their organization. Oh, it's key, isn't it? It's absolutely key, even though it, at the time it might feel a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit like, oh, yeah, they've uh, they'd given that um, that feedback really true and from where they're, they're thinking. Okay, so I'm really intrigued to um, ask you a further question just around, can you give an example of, um, kind of that leading from the back that you do. I'm just really, really interested in 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 what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm. I think it's sometimes you have to be in the front. Like I, I, I think you have to. If any style, I think has to be adaptive enough to be able to, because the world we live in is unpredictable and ever changing, and there is no one size fits all. Um, I find it, uh, when I was sort of in my mid-career, I remember there used to be a question in uh, lots of interviews, like, how would you describe your style? And I always, leadership style or management style, and I always used to struggle with it because I was like, 
I don't think there is one size fits all. I think you have to really understand the context and then change according to what the situation demands of you, according to what your team is demanding of you. So yeah, I mean, naturally, I tend to be quite sort of quite relaxed and quite, um, I don't need to be across, I, I trust the people I work with, I respect their expertise. I think that the reason why they're on my team, if, especially if I've recruited them or because they're they're in an organization is because they are really, really good at what they do. That's the space, that's the place I start from. And um, and uh, unless proven otherwise, I have absolutely no desire to sort of uh, tread on their toes or tell them how to do their job. And I think a big part of that is then letting letting everybody be a leader of sorts. So I often say that we want to have a leaderful organization because it isn't one person, the buck doesn't. Again, it goes back to that gendered sort of old style of leadership was there was one leader, he had all the answers, it was usually a white man. I think that's that that day those days are gone and we are so much better for it. Um so it doesn't need to be, you don't need to have a director or a manager in your title to be a leader. Leaders are people who take risks. Leaders are people who generate good ideas. Leaders are who uh, lead in times of crisis because they have a, they know the values that are guiding them. And I think for me, whoever in a, in a particular context wants to do that, there should be space for them to be able to do that and support them. So there've been times where I've been very happy for others to to be able to take the lead, for example, um, depending on the expertise. Um, for example, if there is a fundraising effort, which is not my expertise, we have very capable people who take the lead and they would just ask us to come in when needed. Or I think there are times when there is a crisis and you do need the head of the organization to take to take it from the front, to actually respond to questions. And, then, and that's the time when you do step up and you do step in. So I think it's always a constant course correction. Leadership is constant course correction, and I think that's 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 what um, that's what um, I sort of try to model. Great stuff, great stuff. Thank you. Um, how do you do all of that in the huge role that you have with that passion that you've got, and kind of be there for your family and have time for yourself? Yeah, I think it's so important to do that, you know, because I've definitely been one of those people at a time in my career where it was just sort of work 24-7. I mean, you know, you you sort of worked long hours, worked, didn't really take holiday, didn't really have very good boundaries. And I think, I think that is definitely something that I have worked a lot to change. And I, maybe it's age as well as you get older, you're like, you know, we need to have a better work-life balance. And uh, I definitely think that having, modeling that is very important for the rest of the staff as well. Um, I mean, working on climate uh, is is not easy. Um, we now have the rise of eco-anxiety alongside burnout. And it's, it's I think it's really critical that leaders pay attention to that, to their staff and model, model the kind of work-life balance they want in the organization. So we are quite good with sort of boundaries over the weekend, weekends, unless it's an emergency. I don't work. People don't, are not expected to work. Uh, we don't send emails or messages about work. Take holidays, I think, quite quite good about making sure that people take their holidays uh, within the year instead of working long hours and work not not taking the time. If they work on the weekends, make sure they take time off. 
those boundaries, but also finding, you know, I think, um, I mean, I, I started running seriously during the pandemic and I find that quite, quite a, a good way of just unwinding. I'm also a big fan of walks. Um, so since moving to this country in particular, I think I've done some really long walks and um, I just absolutely love it. I think um, if you can just take yourself out from the city and just walk um, the South Downs National Park or there's the South Coastal Walk that I've done, which I really loved from uh, Penzance to the Minak Theatre, which is about 21 months. It's just there is so much that, uh, you know, you, you can sort of do to take yourself physically away. I think it's quite important to also physically take yourself out of your usual surroundings from time to time. Um, I am also, you know, people have interests that they sort of give up sometimes in the service of work. Again, it's quite not something I recommend. I quite like watch. I watch a lot of theater um, and I really enjoy it. I mean, London is one of the best cities to to, to experience theater in. So I make sure that I, I make sure I do all those things um, and see my friends and make time to see my family uh, because it's quite easy to get consumed by it all. Um, and I think it's quite an conscious decision to make time for things that are not work. Yeah, absolutely. What what was the last thing you saw at the theatre? I'm intrigued. Um, I watched uh, Standing on Sky's Edge at the National Theatre, which is a musical based on a uh, on a on a block of flats in Sheffield, and it was absolutely brilliant. And in fact, tonight I'm watching the Patriots at um, at uh, in at the West End, um, which I'm really looking forward to. So yeah, um, it's a fiver at the Globe. If you can go to the Globe for a fiver as a sandwich, I highly recommend it. Great stuff. And just finally, what would you um, what piece of advice would you give somebody? Uh, other females working in sustainability, a sustainability consultants in this area that that can be so challenging. What advice would you give if you had to give like three pieces of advice, Ariba? We're really interested. Uh you know, uh, the the maybe you might have to cut it, but don't let the bastards grind you down. Basically, <laughs> this. The 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 environmental sector, the sustainability sector, is one of the most non-diverse sectors um, uh, across across the spectrum. And even in my own time, I've, it's changing. My in my own time, I've seen it change. But at the CEO level, at the senior leadership level, is still quite quite non-diverse. And sometimes you will question whether you belong in these spaces, and you will have a real crisis of confidence, and you will. And sometimes people will treat you like you don't belong in these spaces. But I think it's also important to just ignore that. It's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. It's hard. You will feel like, oh, my God, I was having this conversation and this guy didn't even look at me once. He just looked at this colleague of mine who's junior than me because he was a white man, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's important to process that. It's important to have a support uh, support system that helps you process that. But at the same time... Just try and grow thick skin about it because uh, you belong, you belong, and you're there because you deserve it. So don't don't let any of those instances doubt what what you're here to do. Ariba, that's brilliant advice. Thank you. I'll definitely be uh, thinking about how I can influence some of that stuff myself as well. Um, I guess one final thing is. Um, 
I'm just really intrigued as to when was the last time that you absolutely rolled around on the floor, not quite rolled around on the floor, but um, had a real belly laugh with friends or family. I'm intrigued. <laughs> oh, good question. I mean, we I have a bunch of friends who are quite irreverent and have a pretty irreverent sense of humour, so I'm editing in my head what might be <laughs> unbearable. Uh, but just two nights ago, I was having dinner with my friend and um, with with a group of friends, and one of my friends had cooked, and um, he, there was a, there is a there's a Turkish friend of ours who was saying uh, when he didn't have facial hair, he looked like Freddie Mercury, and I was like. Freddie Mercury's Indian. I look like more look like Freddie Mercury than you do. <laughs> I don't just sort of like uh, spit laughing on it. But yeah, there's uh, there's lots of moments. I I think the other piece of advice would be, to, I don't know about happiness, but finding joy is really important. Uh, and it could be could be small, and it could be about irreverent jokes, or it could be you know elaborate pranks, or you know um, uh, teasing each other playfully about about various identities that we carry. But yeah, find jewelry um, and and laugh as much as you can. Thank you, Ariba. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to share this time with you. Thank you for your time today, and um, thank you everyone for listening. We've reached that time. It's the end of the episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please hit follow for more. You can always find me over on LinkedIn too. I've been your host. Francis Lee Rogers, and I'll see you next time.